It's so good to see you guys. Uh, my name's Doug. Get to be one of the pastors here. And it's 2018. We are off to the races. Uh, but before we get too far, I want to just pause and look back and remember some of what God has done among us. Just two weeks ago, we all gathered as a church on Christmas Eve to celebrate the birth of a baby born 2,000 years ago who changed everything. We had nearly 600 people spread out among three gatherings, all to make much of Jesus. God is on the move, City Light. Another story, last year um, on September 13, I get to the office, I open my email, and in my inbox is this email from my friend Kelly. So Kelly's niece, her name is Melissa. Melissa lost her husband at a young age. Just recently, her husband passed away. It was a sudden death. It was tragic. It was painful. And he left behind Melissa and their three young daughters. So Melissa didn't have a church home, and I agreed to perform the funeral for her husband. And as I'm meeting with Melissa, I realized she's just never heard the gospel. She's never heard this good news that God loves and saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So I share with her verses like John 3, 16, and who Jesus is and what he taught, and I invite her to trust Jesus, and then I preach the funeral for her husband. And there in the midst of tragedy and loss and pain, Melissa met Jesus. She and her three daughters, they've now become part of our church, and her three daughters hear the gospel over and over again in City Light Kids on Sunday morning, and those three daughters also give their lives to Jesus. And so this is a photo that we got of when Melissa was baptized. We got that, Cole? Yeah, there it is. Melissa's baptized. There's the mom, and there's the three girls watching mama get baptized, City Light, Jesus is resurrecting lives among us. I may need new batteries. Okay, I'm back in. This is what happens when you get to co-plant a church together, touch each other in awkward places on a stage, you know? Sorry, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Anyways, I'm fired up, okay? Because Jesus is resurrecting lives among us. Let me share another story with you. Uh, about a year ago, an older gentleman and his female friend started attending our Sunday gatherings. I love this man. I knew I would like him because he wore suspenders and really cool hats every Sunday. Well, I found out his name is Tim, and his female friend is his fiance Jane. And so Tim and Jane, they get connected to a city group, and they get reconnected to the gospel. Their relationships with Jesus are reinvigorated. Tim goes through our summer school for leaders. He sends his first ever email in his life, right? And now he's regularly teaching the gospel to some of those kids back in City Light Kids. I mean, it's incredible what God is doing. And then after the Christmas Eve gatherings, I see this photo on Facebook. 
And you see there, there's Tim and Jane. Tim's the one in the middle with a really cool hat. And they're surrounded by Tim's children and nearly all of his grandchildren, all in one place, worshiping one Savior together. Tim's life has been changed by Jesus. Tim's family tree has been changed by Jesus. City Light, Jesus is resurrecting lives among us. And I could go on and tell you other stories about Chris, a father of four who met Jesus on his birthday, or Matt, or Jen, or Don, or Alex, or William, story after story, life after life, all resurrected by Jesus. We never get tired of this story. Jesus is resurrecting lives among us. And it's not because of some certain strategy that we have or a music style or a preaching style or hipster style because Jesus knows we don't got none of that. No, this is all because of God's crazy love, God's tender mercies. It's because of the compassion of our creator and the death of our savior. It is all by God's grace and it is all for God's glory. So I'll say it again, City Light, Jesus is resurrecting lives among us. Amen? Amen. But this isn't anything new. Like if you were to rewind the clock about 2,000 years, go back to around 30 A.D., one of Jesus' best friends is gravely ill. And so his family, they, they send for Jesus and hope that Jesus will come and perform a miracle on him. But Jesus doesn't get there in time, and this friend dies. Four days later, Jesus gets there, and he finds everyone crying. Jesus cries too. But then Jesus prays, and he steps to that tomb, and he speaks to that dead man. He says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes forth, a dead man back to life again. And everybody in that moment all around him says, Jesus is resurrecting lives among us. And you would think that in that moment, everybody responded with gladness and celebration, right? But that's not the case. When Jesus resurrected Lazarus, there were two different responses that people had. And when Jesus resurrected this guy back from the dead, we're going to look at those two different responses. And as we see those responses, I think we just might see ourselves in them. We may have one of those, oh, that's me sort of moments. Or we might have one of those, oh, I want that to be me sort of moments. So if you have your Bibles, go to John chapter 11. We're going to pick it up towards the end of the chapter, looking at these two different responses. We're going to try a different mic now. Let's see how that works. Eric, you didn't even have to touch me up here, bro. That works well, man. So let's look at, uh, go to John chapter 11. We'll be at the end. So right after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, there's some people, there's some tattletales, and they run and they tell the Pharisees, the religious leaders of that day, these would be the big dogs on the Jewish campus, the ones who wrote the rules and ran the show. And then these religious leaders all get together to talk. They're saying, what are we going to do with this whole resurrecting lives business? What are we going to do with this Jesus guy? And in verse 53, they come to this conclusion. It says, So from that day on, they made plans 
to put him, to put Jesus to death. City Light, this right here is the response of religion. This is the response of religion to resurrecting lives. Let me say it a different way. Religion responds to resurrection by trying to kill it. Religion responds to resurrection by trying to kill it. And maybe you're like me. Like, when I read this response, I'm surprised, right? Like, whenever I hear that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, I think, that's cool. That's exciting. I want to celebrate that. It's like Melissa's three daughters peering over the baptism tank while mama gets dunked. It's like Tim and his cool hat surrounded by his family all worshiping Jesus. That's cool. I want to celebrate that. So how is it even possible that these religious leaders, these are the pastors of the day, the ones who knew their Bible best, the ones who were supposed to honor God, how could these religious leaders want to kill Jesus? Here's how. What they are doing here at this time is nothing new. John in his gospel tells us about these religious leaders multiple times. And every time the religious leaders are rejecting Jesus, they are pushing Jesus away. So this resurrection of Lazarus, it's just the culmination, the climax, that never look back moment, right? These religious leaders could feel this control slipping through their fingers. John helps us see that every time these religious leaders, what they're craving, what they really want is control. And, while Jesus, and when Jesus would heal a blind man, or he would turn water back into wine at a wedding, or Jesus would raise a dead man, these religious leaders can literally feel the control slipping out of their fingers. The crowds would want to follow Jesus instead of follow their rules. The headlines would read about the teachings of Jesus instead of the teachers of the law. And these religious guys can feel the control slipping through their fingers. City Light, know this. Religion is all about control. Religion is always about control. And before we like point the finger at those bad Pharisees, those bad religious leaders in Jesus' day, I think we would do well to ask the question of ourselves, is religion creeping into my heart? Am I craving control? For example, I went through a resurrection of sorts myself this last year. Last Christmas, I was worn out, like I was about to crash and burn. Within a span of a few months, our family had listed our house for sale in Omaha. Then we sold that house, not knowing what house we would move into in Council Bluffs. We lived with my in-laws for six months, bought a fixer-upper over here in Council Bluffs, planted a church, and bought a really old school building for that church, did massive renovations on both our fixer-upper for the family and that school building for the church plant. We welcomed a big, huge 10-pound baby boy into our family and somehow, someway managed to breed, feed, and sell 11 puppies for extra cash, okay? I was exhausted. I was worn out and I was far from my wife, far from my kids, and frankly, I was far from God. Now, more than a year later, I can honestly say that like I'm in a healthy, life-giving place again. 
right? I went through a resurrection of sorts. But do you know how that resurrection started? It started with my wife telling me I was dead. Right now, she she was nice when she said it, and she used gracious words, but she essentially said, Doug, it is like you're dead. And it was hard for me to hear that from her. It took me a while to receive that and to hear that as actually true. Why? Because as dead as I was, I still felt like I had control right? Control, religion had a grip on my soul, and it kept me going through planting a church and preaching a sermon and renovating another room in our house or watching another episode of Gilmore Girls. (laughs) Men, you know your heart's in a bad place if all you want to do is get home and watch Gilmore Girls, okay? That was probably a big clue to my wife, All right? But religion, it kept me working hard. Religion kept me striving for control, even though all that religion actually delivered to me was death. So when my wife said, Doug, it seems like you're dead, I wasn't quite ready for resurrection yet. I still wanted control. I was hanging on to control. Have you ever been there? You know, it's crazy because before every resurrection, there's a death. The death of a relationship that has to die. The death of my pride. The death of a habit that needs to die hard. Having to admit your sinful ways. Having to admit that you're craving control. Having to admit that you are powerless against it and you need help. How easy it is, my friends, to reject resurrection because religion so seductively lies to us and tells us to just keep faking it as though we are making it, even though inside we're dying from it. Can I invite some of us this morning into the beginnings of resurrection? Can I invite you to reject religion? Lose that mask. Stop playing that game. And maybe most difficult of all, release control. When Jesus starts showing up and inviting you to resurrection, you will probably have a defining moment when you can either grab hold of control more aggressively and more um, passionately than you ever have, or you can release that control and trust that Jesus is still in the business of resurrecting lives among us, maybe even your own. My prayer for us is that we would reject religion and instead receive the resurrection of Jesus Christ in our lives instead of hanging on to the control of our lives. Amen, church? The first response to resurrection is religion. But there's a second response, a better response, a more joyful response, and that response is found in John chapter 12. Now, right before John chapter 12, when these religious leaders are trying to get Jesus and they're hatching a plan to kill him, Jesus just gets the heck out of Dodge, right? He, he gets out of there. Then we don't know when or how long he's gone, but he comes back to the scene of the resurrection. He comes back to Mary and Martha's house. And Mary and Martha and Lazarus, the dude that he raised from the dead, 
they're excited to see him. They love him. They celebrate him. They throw a dinner party for him. They're so glad. Man, their friend is back. This is the guy who raised Lazarus from the dead. So Martha puts on her apron, and she starts cooking and cleaning and serving. Lazarus, look at this in verse 2 of chapter 12. It says this about Lazarus. He was one of those reclining with Jesus at table. Like, can you imagine Lazarus looking at Jesus in this moment? Could you imagine Lazarus? Like, what does he do when he hears the voice of Jesus? This was the voice that called him out of the grave. Now he's just chilling with Jesus. He's just chatting with Jesus. Like, what's going on in Lazarus's mind right there? And then the story focuses in on this lady named Mary. And Mary, this isn't Jesus's mom. It's a different Mary, Lazarus's sister, And look at verse 3 with me. It says, Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So Jesus shows up and Martha serves, Lazarus chills, and Mary adores She pours out this perfume at the feet of Jesus. And later in verse 5, we learn that Mary's perfume that she's pouring out is worth at least 300 denarii, 300 days worth of labor, 300 days wages for the average worker employee in that time. In our day and time, that would probably come to something like forty to $50,000, all poured out at the feet of Jesus. In a matter of moments, Mary took what was most likely a family heirloom, and she just poured it out at the feet of Jesus. This is the response of radical generosity. This is the response of radical generosity to Jesus resurrecting lives. It isn't measured. It isn't calculated. It isn't careful. It is shocking. One year's wages, one year's salary. So what are you going to make this year? What will your wages or your salary going to be this year? A year's worth of work a year's worth of overtime, a year's worth of driving in the cold and snow or heat and humidity, a year's worth of waking up early to get there on time or staying late to get that project done on time, a year's worth of answering calls or making decisions or stacking boxes or running a cash register or doing what the boss says, a year's worth of work all poured out in a matter of moments. So much so that the room is filled with the aroma, with the fragrance from this perfume. This aroma was going to be on the disciples' clothes and on Jesus' clothes for days to come. And Jesus only had days left in his life. All of it poured out in a moment at the feet of Jesus. And wouldn't you just love to ask Mary, why? Why that extravagant? Why that radical? Like, where does radical generosity like that come from? I don't know about you, but I struggle to give away 10% of our family's income every month. And here she is pouring out a year's salary in just a matter of moments at the feet of Jesus. I would love to just pull up a chair next to Mary and say, why? And I think her answer would be, 
my brother was dead, but now he's alive again. My brother who I saw, he was dead, but now he's alive again. What is one year's wages to me in light of the resurrection of my brother by the Lord Jesus Christ? Resurrected lives lead to radical generosity. Resurrected lives lead to radical generosity, which makes me think of our church story. And when I think of the story of our church, sometimes it just makes me scratch my head. You know, like we started, we had about 50 adults who met together as a core team. This was literally two years ago. And we all, we counted up our pennies. We committed our dollars. We put it all together to see if we could buy this building, right? Some of you guys were there. You remember this moment. I mean, we prayed, we labored, we sweat. We gave everything we possibly could so that we could buy this building, And most people, when they think of the early days of our church, they think of this moment, right? It's like a packed room. I think we're there, Cole. There it is. They think of this moment right here. It's a packed room. There's cool lights, a good paint job, right? Like cool wood wall up at the front and a preacher who looks like a hobbit. That's what most people think of. But whenever I think of the early days of our church, I think of this, knocking down walls, mask on, hoping that we don't inhale asbestos or fiberglass. Literally, we are swinging hammers in the dark because we had the power off so we wouldn't electrocute ourselves. We are ripping carpet up and finding holes in the cement. I think of those days, or I think of this, random carpet patched together. We're gathering it, but it's a bad paint job. Lights are literally hung up with the clothes hangers that we pulled from our closets so that those lights would stay up. There's three different kinds of chairs in the room. None of them match in color or size, but we're just so excited excited to be there. All that work, all that money, literally thousands of dollars and thousands of hours all given in that building and for that building. But here's the funny thing. We didn't even have public worship gatherings there for a whole year. Just like that, we're out of there. But in that year, in that year, we met Chloe across the street from the building a teenager who was being ravaged by cancer. And she met Jesus in the hospital hospital bed as she was fighting cancer. All that money, all that giving, all that radical generosity, so worth it for a life changed by Jesus Christ, the life resurrected by Jesus. In that year, we met another neighbor. His name's Frank. He was in his 90s across the street. And we built a relationship with Frank. And even after we moved out here, my friend Arnie kept pursuing Frank. And he got to share the gospel with Frank. And he led Frank to Christ on his deathbed. All that work, all that money, all that radical generosity, so worth it for a life resurrected by Jesus. In that year, Brian and Susan Perry, they received a postcard in the mail and they came because we were close. In that year, Benjamin, my friend, could walk from the halfway house just a couple blocks away to worship Jesus with a group of people. In that year, 200 people gathered on a regular basis in a building to make much of Jesus. All that work, all that labor, all that generosity, all worth it because of lives that got resurrected by Jesus. City Light, resurrected lives always make radical generosity so worth it. 
In Luke chapter 15, there's a story where a son, the son of a very loving dad, takes his inheritance early, basically telling his dad, I wish you were dead. He takes that inheritance. He leaves and he goes and spends it all. And then he finally comes to his senses as a broke man living in a pile of pig slop. He comes back. And when he comes back, the dad runs to meet him. The dad hugs his neck and kisses his face. And then the dad throws this big, expensive, lavish, radically generous party to welcome his home son. Why? The dad says, because my son was dead, but now he's alive. For Mary, it was her brother who was dead, but now he is alive. Maybe for you, it was your hopes that were dead, but now they are alive. Maybe it was a relationship that was fractured, but now it is whole. Your children were checked out and gone from you, but now they're reconnected in their home. Your spouse seemed dead, but now he or she is alive. Maybe it's your own soul, your own heart, your own life that was dead, but now it is alive in Jesus. Resurrected lives always make radical generosity so worth it. Resurrected lives lead to the kind of generosity that make people around us go, whoa, that's too much. Why are you giving so much? That's too much, too fast, too far. That is crazy. And this is just our story, City Light. This is who we are. Our mother church, they sent us out with way too much money, way too much generosity. Our denomination, the Christian and Missionary Alliance, they sent us out with way too much money, way too much generosity. And every step of the way, you guys, our church, you have been more than gracious, more than faithful to meet all the financial needs of our church. There hasn't been a single moment when our church went without. There hasn't been a single moment when our staff didn't get paid. In every new season, new step, new parking lot, new building, new construction, new staff, new city groups, anything that we've needed, you guys have been more than generous, and God has provided for it. City Light, thank you for your radical generosity. But can I give us a challenge? Is that okay? Can I put a challenge before us? And I'm not going to ask you to give more money, okay? Our church is not in a financial crisis. We're not going to sing eight verses of just as I am until you've emptied out every last penny in every last pocket. But I am going to give us a challenge, okay? You ready? Who do you want Jesus to resurrect? That's the challenge. Right, if it is true that resurrected lives lead to radical generosity, then the deeper challenge isn't give more money. We've discovered that can take care of itself just fine. The deeper challenge is, who do you want Jesus to resurrect? When you look around your workplace, who do you want Jesus to resurrect? When you look on your family tree, who do you want Jesus to resurrect? When you look around your neighborhood or your classroom or your new roommates, who do you want Jesus to resurrect? When you look in the mirror, who do you want Jesus to to resurrect. Resurrected lives lead to radical generosity. You know, the goal of our church, the goal of City Light, isn't to like gather on Sundays and have some good sermons and sing some sweet songs. We like that, but that's not our goal. I think if we're not careful, we can begin to think that's the goal, right? Just put a fresh coat of polish on what we've already got, sing some more songs, preach some more sermons, hope that it runs great and looks good. But man, can I be honest? That sounds like religion to me. And none of us signed up for religion. 
No, the goal of City Light Church, and when I say City Light, I'm not saying me and Eric, I'm saying all of us. Our goal is to multiply disciples and churches. And for that to happen, we need Jesus to resurrect lives among us. And those lives are the ones that you already touch, you already know. Our nieces and our nephews, our mom or our dad, our workout buddy or classmate or roommate, your neighbor, your friend, your family. Oh, City Light, may we never lose our hunger to see Jesus resurrect lives among us. And may we always respond with radical generosity when he does. Amen, church? Amen. Now, I think if we were to sit down and ask Mary why the radical generosity, she would say, my brother was dead, but now he's alive. But I want to close, not by looking at what Mary might say about her generosity. I want us to close by looking at what Jesus did say about her radical generosity. In verses 4 and 5, Judas chimes in, okay? And Judas says, whoa, that's too much. Why so much? Guys, don't you know we could have sold that and then we could have fed the poor. We could have taken care of some orphans. We could have taken care of some widows. We could have planted a church in the inner city. And then Jesus responds to Judas in verse 7 this way. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with me with you, but you do not always have me. Okay, so Jesus here, he's saying, let her keep going. Don't stop this extravagant gift. Don't stop this radical generosity. Why, Jesus? Because it's for the day of my burial, he says. You won't have me much longer. You'll have the poor always, but you won't have me much longer. So Jesus is strangely and awkwardly taking this extravagant gift, this explosion of adoration. He's taking this radical generosity and connecting it to his own burial, his own death. Jesus is telling Judas and Mary and everyone else at that party that Mary is putting the burial spices on him. Jesus knew he was about to die. And in that day, they'd put burial spices or perfume on a dead body to try to keep the stench of death away for a while. So Mary's radical generosity made sense to Jesus in light of his impending death. Mary's radical generosity makes total sense in light of Jesus's coming death. I might say it this way. The radical death of Jesus gives meaning to the radical generosity of Mary. Think about this. The death of Jesus is such a life-resurrecting, history-reorienting, world-changing, paradigm-shattering, universe-encompassing, sin-forgiving event that pouring out a year's worth of wages is at the least appropriate. 
Jesus connects Mary's extravagant generosity to his own impending extravagant generosity, except Jesus wouldn't pour out a year's worth of wages in the form of perfume. Jesus would pour out an eternity's worth of payment for sin and love for sinners in the form of his own blood. Jesus' radical generosity gives meaning to Mary's radical generosity. So for us, this means that all of our giving, our loving, our serving, those who will today make a new and lasting commitment to give faithfully to our church, those families who will go home and look at their budget together and reorient some things so that they can give more, those who will volunteer, bless, share the gospel, invite a friend, or empty your own bank account. This means for us that our giving finds its true meaning as it reflects the radical giving of Jesus himself, his death, and his burial. And in the end, we find that our giving doesn't ultimately come from the resurrected lives around us. Our giving comes from the resurrected life given for us, Jesus himself.